Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kelsey Bowler. Kelsey, it's great to have you back on the show today. Lauren is traveling this week. She's down at the border with Rachel Del Judas. They're filming some exclusive interviews, which we're super excited to share with you all in the coming weeks. But Kelsey, I'm so excited that you are here with us today. I want to chat a little bit for just a second about a COVID phenomenon. So when the pandemic hit, suddenly America became obsessed with dogs at a level never seen before. Of course, dogs have always been so popular as pets and funny videos. I think half of my Instagram Reels feed is just funny dog videos. But 2020 and 2021 could definitely be termed the dog years in a good way. And Kelsey, your little girl, Scarlett, has caught on to this trend along with the rest of America. The videos that you post of her with your dog, Utah, are absolutely adorable. (laughs) You're right. She has totally uh, caught on. I have to say I'm a little concerned about COVID dogs because they're so used to owners being home all day, every day. Yeah. Uh, what are they going to do when we go back into work? There's going to be probably a lot of anxiety medicine for dogs being prescribed. I bet. Um, but yeah, Scarlett and uh, my four, five-year-old Australian Shepherd, Utah, are um, the best of friends. I'll say at least Scar- on Scarlett's part, uh, Utah <laughs> is the best friend. Utah is has warmed up to Scarlett. And uh, if you follow me on Instagram, I do often post cute content of them together and it just melts your heart. She's obsessed with him. But um, Utah doesn't always return the love. And I have to be honest, like Instagram does not always reflect reality as most of you, our listeners know. And I have gone through some tough times as a new mom uh, with a young daughter and a dog who was like, what is this? little baby who used to sit in your lap all day is now trying to walk. And I got very nervous about whether we could uh, keep Utah around her. Um, Mm. It was not always easy. So they are adorable. We are in a good place today. Uh, But having a dog and a baby is not easy. And I say that as a warning (laughs) to all Anyone who, you know, wants babies in their near future, do your research on the type of dogs you get because I got my homework cut out for me getting an Australian Shepherd. (laughs) But of course, I to death. uh, And, you know, the Scarlet and Utah videos are just adorable. (laughs) Well, I'm sure Utah sometimes thinks, wait a second, I used to be the only baby in Kelsey's life. And (laughs) what's this other child doing? (laughs) Precisely. (laughs) Uh, too fun. Well, be sure to follow Kelsey on Instagram so you can catch all that cute content. But we have an awesome show planned for you all today. Up on today's edition of Problematic Women, I talk with Sarah Partial Perry, a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We discuss a new Democrat-backed hate crime bill and why it's not gaining the support of any conservatives in Congress. Plus, Sarah breaks down an important federal court victory for free speech and religious liberty on university campuses. And Kelsey and I talk about United Airlines' announcement that 50% of the new pilots they train will either be women or people of color. We also talk about the continued controversy over Georgia's new election law, and as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. 
Yes, lots to get to each week here on Problematic Women. We sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those of you whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or maybe just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encourage others to subscribe. It makes such a difference. All right, let's go ahead and get to it. I am so pleased to be joined by Sarah Partial Perry, a legal fellow in the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Virginia. Well, we have a great lineup today of really important issues to discuss, and I want to start with an article that you just recently published for the Washington Examiner titled, Senate Democrats Play Hide the Ball with New Hate Crime Bill. In the piece, you discuss how Hawaii Democrat Senator Maisie Hirono's new bill, the COVID-19 hate crime act, uh, really how what what is included in that bill and what that bill means. So just begin by telling us what exactly the goal of this legislation is. Well, ostensibly, it's directed at hate crimes against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. And understandably, Maisie Hirono from Hawaii, um, someone who is from that descent herself, she's in, she's sort of increasingly concerned with the reported incidents in hate crimes against this group of American citizens. However, the problem is sort of twofold with this bill. Um, first, it is entirely duplicative of what we have already on the books. There are at least four federal laws that prevent these kinds of hate crimes from taking place. There is a reporting system at the federal level that is specifically designed to address hate crimes based on race and nationality. And also all but three states in the country have their own local and state level hate crimes laws, particularly in California and New York, which if you go to the Department of Justice website, you'll see that the incidents correlate with sort of increasing hate crime statistics against Asian Americans in those two states, in the coastal states of New York and California, and their states actually have some of the most robust anti-hate crime legislation on the books. So the first problem is that it ultimately just does more than we need government to do by duplicating and appointing another government bureaucrat to handle a situation that's already being handled by the government machinery. So then what what is the motivation uh, that Maisie Hirono seems to have in presenting this bill if we already have legislation in place that prevents these types of hate crimes? Well, you know, I titled the op-ed Hiding the Ball and ultimately sort of the MO, the political MO for the left these days seems to be the issue of SOGI protection, sexual orientation and gender identity. And not surprisingly, the bill itself contains language with these explicit protections and their interrelationship to COVID-19. Now, 
laughably, that's a connection I don't think anyone in their right mind would make. The connection between COVID-19 and, for example, gender identity, I do think it's another way for the Democrats in the Senate to be able to shoehorn through an interpretation and an adaptation of federal law that includes gender identity as a protected class. You know, Bostock, the decision that everyone remembers from 2020, had a lot of fallout. This was a decision in which Justice Gorsuch made clear specifically that biological sex was still the determining factor in federal law. But because biological sex naturally implicated sexual orientation and gender identity, you couldn't take those into account without taking into account biological sex. I think Senate Democrats and House Democrats have really sort of jumped the ball on this and they've tried to fast forward to the end by instituting SOGI protections in in just about every piece of legislation that's up for grabs. So then what are the implications? If if the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act passes through the Senate, through the House, and is signed into law, and, you know, like you say, kind of has um, these, these other aspects that extend into gender identity uh, and, you know, goes beyond um, really just discrimination on, you know, things around COVID-19, what are those broader implications? Well, right now, what it does is it appoints a separate individual at the Department of Justice to track these types of specific hate crimes, again, ostensibly geared toward Asian Americans, but inclusive of all of these other classes. So it includes sort of a separate piece of working in the federal government to track these specific hate crimes. But What's currently at issue right now is the fact that uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has just announced that the bill is going to move forward this week. And within this movement, there is a proposed legislative amendment to take away the connection to COVID-19, which makes you ask the question, well, then why in the first place are we even introducing the legislation. If COVID-19 was the alleged hook to be able to institute this type of a hate crime bill and its relationship to Asian Americans, if you eliminate COVID-19 and we're already protected by federal hate crimes laws for issues of race and national origin, it sort of is a duplicative bill itself. But what we know would take place is that there would be federal hate crime protections for gender identity or perceived gender identity within federal law. That's a very big deal. And we'd have somebody to track these types of hate crimes at the Department of Justice going forward. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like this bill contains a lot of elements of the highly controversial Equality Act. Absolutely. I think what the Senate Dems are doing right now is they are trying to pad their win on what they perceive to be the Equality Act's chances. And again, still waiting on a vote for the Equality Act. We've got some maybe some GOP senators who are more moderate, who haven't indicated one way or another what they think about the religious protections in the Equality Act or the lack thereof. And so I think Maisie Hirono sees this as an opportunity to cut to the chase on some of these SOGI protections when, in fact, we've already got 
all of the federal laws and all the state laws that issue these types of protections already. But I 100 percent agree, Virginia. I think this is an attempt to sort of make sure that if the Equality Act doesn't pass, we have at least some kind of a mechanism to be able to prevent hate crimes on the basis of or purported basis of gender identity. Hmm. So as you mentioned, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said he's going to he's going to bring this bill forward uh, for a vote on the Senate floor. So what what do we expect to happen next? This is a partisan bill. No Republicans have come out in support of the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act. What do you think this debate is going to look like? Well, it's hard to say. I do know that Republicans have offered amendments. Of course, we don't hear anything about those amendments, because if you believe other media outlets, they're only covering the Democratic amendments, which have been introduced. And ultimately, one of those amendments would remove the COVID-19 language hook in the first place might actually pretend a renaming of the bill because, of course, COVID-19, again, was the ostensible reason for the bill in the first place. But Along with other Republicans, Susan Collins, for example, has some concerns she's expressed about the bill's original language and that link between hate crimes and coronavirus. But we know that there also is an amendment on tap from Senators Richard Blumenthal and Senator Jerry Moran that would establish grants to aid state and local governments with their own hate crime reporting on this front. So there are two pending Democratic amendments that we know of, one Republican amendment, and we are anticipating a vote on this bill by the end of the week. Wow. Okay. Well, we'll keep a keep a close eye on it. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how this unfolds. Really appreciate you breaking that down for us, Sarah. Sure. I do want to take some time uh, to get into another topic that you've been covering very, very closely for the Daily Signal and the Heritage Foundation, and that's the subject of religious liberty and free speech. Recently, we've seen quite a few victories on college campuses around free speech and religious liberty. Let's talk about one specific case that happened at Shawnee State University in Portsmouth, Ohio, which is a public university. Back in 2018, the Ohio University charged philosophy professor Nicholas Merriweather with a violation of Title IX because he refused to use a student's preferred pronoun. He said he could only use the student's biological pronoun. So could you just explain this case a little bit for us? What was the situation here? This is a fascinating case and an encouraging outcome from the Sixth Circuit Federal Court. And of course, there have been lots of judicial opinions, lots of jurists and legal scholars have come out with their own interpretations of why the Sixth Circuit was wrong in reaching the conclusions that it did when it issued a victory for Nicholas Merriweather. But this is somebody who had a spotless record at the university that had taught philosophy as a Christian for over 25 years, had led tours overseas, discussing Christian thought, among other things. And he was a recipient of an email that went out to all faculty in 2017, indicating that it was now the faculty policy per administration to refer to students by their preferred pronouns. Well, Nicholas Merriweather actually wanted to get ahead on the issue. He went to his department chair and he said, listen, as a Christian, I'm going to have a hard time adhering to this policy. Let me tell you why. And his department chair actually exhibited patent hostility to Dr. Merriweather. She said that Christianity had no 
point, it had no place in academia, and that it was primarily motivated out of fear, his desire just to use biological pronouns or just to use the student's last name. So these were things that, while he may have had objections to, she informed him that he was going to have to adhere to anyway, but it was not tested until 2018 when he was actually in a class and saw a student, obvious male biology, no indication of this student's preferred pronouns in any record, in any academic record. So I can start by saying that this was a student who, to me, sort of raises the specter of whether or not this individual was attempting to make a political statement. There was no record whatsoever of a preferred pronoun. And when Dr. Merriweather referred to that individual as sir, as opposed to ma'am, the individual came up and said, listen, I'm transgender and I want you to refer to me by a female pronoun. Long story short, after back and forth and the threat of further disciplinary action, again, for a teacher who had a spotless record, who had had two and a half decades of stellar exemplary work at the university, he decided he was going to be proactive and he brought suit in federal court and Ultimately, the Sixth Circuit decided, absolutely, you cannot compel a professor to say something with which he does not agree. And professors, as much as anyone else, do not relinquish their constitutional rights when they walk in the schoolhouse door. So essentially, the the Sixth Circuit has said, yes, uh, this case can move forward, proceed. So after the Sixth Circuit's decision, what happens now? So the case will be remanded in part. Um, The case granted summary judgment for Mr. Merriweather himself, which is wonderfully dispositive on certain questions. He brought a number of claims, but as concerns the First Amendment claim, which is really sort of the biggest issue here, the Sixth Circuit decided, listen, we're going to close the book on this. This is what we're making a decision, a determination on right now, but it will be remanded for the other claims that he brought up because the court requested supplemental briefing by both parties to make sure that all of the facts had been displayed, that they had been investigated. So we'll be curious to see what the outcome is there. But this is a groundbreaking decision out of the Sixth Circuit. And I do think that Judge Thapar, who is a um, he is American Indian, he is somebody um, whose family is immigrant, and they have really worked their way up. He is a judge of stellar credentials, who was the second of President Trump's judicial nominees. He really had no patience whatsoever for this new catalog of wokeness that we're seeing come out of universities and said, these need to be paragons of intellectual diversity. We cannot compel the speech of our professors any more than we could compel it of our students. And this is ultimately a slam dunk win for the First Amendment on college campuses. Well, and, you know, sadly, this is a situation that we've seen played out before. The Daily Signal did a documentary about a teacher that had a very similar situation happen and and lost their job um, because you know they essentially called called a student by uh, by the wrong pronoun, uh, quote unquote, wrong pronoun. Um, so what I mean, what does this ruling mean for for freedom of speech and religious liberty moving forward? 
Well, there's this excellent precedent if there are suits in the future. What we've done now is based on the case that you were referring to, the case of Peter Vlaming in the Fourth Circuit. It sets up a circuit split between the Fourth Circuit and now the Sixth Circuit, both of which reached opposite outcomes on the use of preferred pronouns within an academic setting. Setting up the circuit split actually tees up a Supreme Court consideration. Now, whether or not we'll actually see that remains to be seen, but there is now sufficient jurisdiction because there's a difference of two federal circuits for the Supreme Court to grant cert and make ultimately a determination on which of the two impressions and analyses is correct. So it will be something definitely for future consideration. So could one of these cases uh, rise to the level of the Supreme Court, or do you think that would be a, a separate instance that would bring this issue to the Supreme Court potentially? It's not beyond the pale for Shawnee State and its Board of Governors to continue litigation until they receive the outcome that they want in this case. And while ultimately the Supreme Court has not ruled on an issue as specific as this since the case of Pickering, which was a few decades ago, in which the court said, we're not getting to the question of how much freedom within a scholastic context a professor has. That's for a later date. And that was a case on which the Sixth Circuit ruled, ultimately using what's called sort of the Pickering analysis, the Pickering balancing test, whether or not preferred pronouns are a matter of public concern. The Supreme Court will want to revisit that rationale from Pickering to make a determination about whether or not this is an appropriate interpretation. So it's wholly possible that Shawnee State could say there is a circuit split, we are unhappy with the outcome, and we're going to appeal this to the Supreme Court. Hmm. Well, Sarah, before we let you go today, I want to take a little bit of time uh, just to find out about yourself, to share a little bit of, of your own story with our audience. This is your first time on Problematic Women, but we hope to have you on many, many more times in the future. So how did you first get interested in the field of law? Well, actually, I am the daughter of a lawyer and swore I would never do public interest law. <laughs> ha ha. Never say never, because that's precisely what I ended up doing. And I took sort of a circuitous route. I got my start in complex civil litigation. Ultimately, I wanted to help people. And I do think I was one of those people for whom the rose colored glasses were still on when I graduated <laughs> from law school. And I was once told law school teaches you to think about the law, but actually practicing the law makes you a lawyer. And I found that I didn't like complex litigation as much as I thought. Um, there wasn't sort of that connection to the element of helping people that I had really hoped for the first time around. So I went in-house at an advertising agency, did corporate and transactional law and development for them for a number of years. And then as fate and uh, divine intervention would have it, had three kids in short order, got involved in public policy work, another never say never moment. And that's precisely where I ended up re-entering the workforce found myself drawn specifically to the notion of academic freedom and my work in building coalitions dedicated to religious liberty and defending against incidents of anti-Semitism on campus was sort of the perfect match. Ultimately, that set me up for my tenure at the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights as senior counsel there. And then 
here I am now at the Heritage Foundation doing and writing about precisely the types of things that I went to law school to do. Yeah, well, we are certainly honored to have you at Heritage. It's it's a true, true blessing and treat. Um, for anyone listening who, you know, is maybe weighing, do I go to law school? Should I pursue a career in law? What would you what would you say to them? What would be your advice to them? Well, I think I would start by saying you need to ask yourself the question of why it is you want to be a lawyer. For me, that was sort of the continual refrain. That was sort of the violin E string that continued to play. I really wanted to help people who were discriminated against. And one of the areas of law in which I practiced was employment discrimination law. My father himself, civil rights attorney, who also practiced in employment discrimination law. But if you start with the why, the how, what, and when always falls into place. I think also you need to ask yourself if you are thinking the public interest law firm route or the public interest nonprofit route, or you're interested in going the partner fast track route, because for individuals like me, who knew I wanted to have children, that was certainly out of range for a while. So the why is definitely the first and most important question. Yeah. Well, we want to ask before we let you go, one final question that we love to ask all of our first time guests on the show. And that is, do you consider yourself a feminist? Yes or no? Why or why not? Well, to say that feminism is strictly the purview of liberals is sort of a duh response, but I am going to give you that duh response. <laughs> I think I think feminists and liberals have claimed the term feminism, but I think as we find ourselves modulating in our political stances and our allies with other women and other individuals who may not share our political perspectives or our social or cultural perspectives on everything, but with whom we can agree, I find myself working with more and more feminists. And I will say, Virginia, that I don't consider myself a feminist, but I do consider myself a problematic woman. And that I do think is the purview of conservatives. Oh, I love it. Yes, absolutely. You 100% are a problematic woman, Sarah. <laughs> There's no <laughs> doubt about that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate you coming on. I was happy to do it. Thanks, Virginia. Now stay tuned because up next, Kelsey and I talk about United Airlines' pledge to greatly increase hiring of female pilots and pilots of color. But before we get to that conversation, I have a question for you all. Are you following The Daily Signal on Instagram? Every day, The Daily Signal releases new content on Instagram that is both entertaining and meant to keep you informed on the news that matters. Whether you love quick explainer videos, inspirational quotes, or reading up on the news stories of the day, you can catch it all on The Daily Signal Insta. So go ahead and pull out your phone and follow The Daily Signal on Instagram so you never miss out on the content you love. United Airlines is trying to keep up with the woke crowd. The airlines recently tweeted, our flight deck should reflect the diverse group of people on board our planes every day. That's why we plan for 50% of the 5,000 pilots we train in the next decade to be women or people of color. 
Kelsey, you wrote an excellent piece for the Independent Women's Forum talking about why this action concerns you. Why do you see United Airlines actions as concerning? Well, it was only a matter of time before identity politics, racial and gender quotas entered career fields where people's lives are actually on the line. I'm talking about medical professions and now in the airlines. The very idea of hiring pilots based on their skin color and their sex versus their experience, qualifications, and merit is terrifying. An airline's most sacred duty is to keep its passengers safe. And, you know, when we're boarding a plane, we have no choice but to entrust our pilots with our lives. And what United's policy now essentially does is forces us to question our pilots. You know, are you flying this plane because you were the most qualified through your training program? Or are you flying this plane to fulfill a gender or racial quota? That is demeaning to the pilots who put in years of hard work to be flying a top airline. And it's insulting to us passengers who really don't have a true free market in terms of the airlines. You know, this is an industry that is dominated by a small few. So it's, you know, we, we, if you have a problem with what United is doing here, well, turn around and go look at what Delta did or said in terms of the Georgia election law or any other issue, because, all the airlines at this point are getting woke. It's becoming unavoidable. And so there is one note I want to make. After tweeting about this plan for half of the pilots that they train in the next decade to be women or people of color, they obviously received a lot of backlash and they issued a clarification. This is what they said, quote, All the highly qualified candidates we accept into the academy, regardless of race or sex, will have met or exceeded the standards we set for admittance. So I guess that that gives you some assurance that at least these pilots will have met the basic qualification standards. But that really doesn't give me personally much assurance because When flying a plane, we want the person who is the most qualified to be flying that plane. And now what United is essentially doing is sending the message that, you know, if I have a female pilot who passed the basic requirements or I have a, a, but, but maybe is new to the industry and does not have years of experience, and then I have a male pilot who not only passed the standards, but went well above and beyond them, and then on top of that has decades of experience flying planes, which person do you think they're going to hire? I think the message is clear. They want to fulfill their racial and gender quotas, and they are going to pick the person who does that, uh, whether or not they are more qualified and more experienced. Hmm. Well, and one of the most interesting points that I think you raise in this piece, which we'll be sure to link in the show notes because it's a great article, but you talk a bit about uh, equality of opportunities. So United and J.P. Morgan Chase, they announced that they are offering $2.4 million in financial aid to the best and brightest talent 
opening the door to a lucrative career for people who previously didn't have the opportunity to pursue one. So women and people of color, absolutely, they should have equal opportunities. They should have the opportunity to pursue a career as a pilot if that's what they want to do. Kelsey, you argue that there is a difference between equality of opportunities and equality of outcomes. What do you mean by this? This is something we see happening in the education world as well, where, uh, you know, those of us who support school choice want to ensure there is equality of opportunities, uh, meaning that every child has the opportunity to go to a school that students needs uh, versus, unfortunately, on the left, they often care more about equality of outcomes. So they want between the different racial and ethnic groups, they want the same level of achievement, the same level of, you know, suspension rates and so forth across the board. They want equality of outcomes. And this has already become very detrimental in the education world. And it can and and will be equally as detrimental in careers where, again, lives are on the line. I want to be clear that I think United and JP Morgan teaming up to offer $2.4 million in financial aid to individuals who previously didn't have the opportunity to pursue this lucrative career is, is, a, is a wonderful thing. I would love to see more of this. The private sector putting their money where their mouth is to ensure that underprivileged students, under underprivileged individuals who want to become a pilot but who cannot afford this expensive career track, which does uh, require years and years of training, this is a great thing to offer the, these opportunities to more Americans, whether that's women or people of color, through financial aid to pursue. That's a great way of also unlocking untapped potential and leveling the playing field in that matter. But the problem is United and, you know, any other industry where we see these, this type of social engineering doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with trying to level the playing field in terms of opportunities. They, again, want to pursue equality outcomes. And so in addition to prioritizing identity politics over basic safety, this quest to fulfill gender and racial quotas and hiring decisions undermines the employees that it claims it wants to help. It does this by signaling to women and minorities that, hey, you cannot reach these lucrative positions unless you get this special treatment. Now, this, again, actively undermines the hard work that all these individuals put in to achieve their goals, undercuts their confidence that they actually earn these positions, and it cheapens their achievements by creating a sense of tokenism. I I ask this. When boarding a flight, does any qualified pilot want passengers to question whether they are flying that plane based on how they look? So someone on on the left or even someone that's kind of moderate listening to our conversation might say, wow, you guys sound really antiquated because, you know, women and people of color, they've been held down, they've been held back for so long that now, you know, maybe men should be held back for a little while so that women and minorities can catch up. What's your response to that argument, Kelsey? The very idea of holding certain groups back so that other groups can get ahead is anti-American and it is 
anti-capitalist. It leads directly on a path to communism where everyone has the same, where you do have quote unquote equality of outcomes because that's the only option. That's the only option that the government provides. What we're talking about here right now is flying planes, a career that should clearly be based on merit. Now, when all other things are the same, you know, if, if United is presented with a uh, an African-American pilot who has equal qualifications and experience as a white male pilot, do I have any problem with United picking the African-American pilot? Of course not. I think that's a great thing. I think I think it's wonderful that United wants its its crew to reflect the diversity of its passengers. And they can do that uh, by providing more scholarship opportunities and encouraging women and minorities to pursue this career. Uh, but the social engineering, the idea that they they are possibly now going to hire based on skin color and and gender uh, should be terrifying to anybody who flies a plane. And again, it's incredibly insulting to all those women and minority pilots who put in years and years and years of hard work to get where they are. Their, their career overnight is just cheapened because people now wonder, well, did you really get this job because of your qualifications or did you get it because of your skin color or your sex. Hmm, yeah. Well, I do want to pivot um, for a minute. One of the one of the points that you raise in the article is that United Airlines they they've recently spoken out, like so many other kind of big corporations, about Georgia's new voter ID law, which is a little bit ironic, of course, because airlines require you to show an ID in order to fly. Uh, but I want to take a few minutes to chat about this new election law out of Georgia that's getting so much media attention and so much press. Uh, the bill has been pegged as racist and discriminatory. There are claims that water and food can no longer be handed out at polling places, that polls across Georgia are now have to close at 5 p.m. So what is the truth about this bill? Polling places, they can stay open until 7 p.m. Water and snacks can be handed out by poll workers, or you can bring your own. The bill allows for early voting even on Sundays. Georgia's election bill, it actually makes it easier for everyone to vote, but it makes it harder for people to cheat. And Georgia's new voting law, it's actually not that unique. Many other states have the exact same laws in place. And in fact, Delaware, President Joe Biden's home state, has even more stringent voting restrictions than Georgia has in place. So Kelsey, why do you think the left is so up in arms over a voting bill that truly only makes it harder for individuals to cheat, but actually makes it even easier for its citizens to vote. Unfortunately, I think the backlash that we have seen in response to the Georgia election law is a direct result of misleading and outright false reporting by the media that was intentionally inflammatory. Of course, uh, I'll credit activists on the far left for uh, fueling the media with um, 
all these misperceptions about what the Georgia uh, bill truly would uh, would do. And you uh, did a good job <laughs> explaining some of the basics there. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I unfortunately think we have a media that <laughs> does not care about informing the public. It cares about its ratings. And the way it gets its ratings is by fueling and, and driving this type of outrage so that oh, you don't know what's going on in the Georgia election law? I have to turn on the news to find out when in reality um, what's happening in Georgia is they are, they <laughs> while ex- expanding opportunities to vote, they are simply ensuring that the integrity of every legal vote is protected. We don't have an American democracy if we don't have protected elections. Uh, it's it's very basic. And I it's kind of shocking that this has become such a divisive issue in our country, because we have no country anymore, if we don't have voter integrity. Yeah, absolutely. I had a, a great recent conversation with Hans von Spakovsky, who's a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We spoke on the Daily Signal podcast just um, earlier this week, and he talked about how, you know, this massive uh, push from the left to really stand against and speak out against Georgia's new election law, he believes is really motivated by a larger agenda to pass a bill known as H.R. 1, which is essentially a federal takeover of elections. And he said, you know, by getting this messaging out there that, you know, states can't, they can't do their elections well. If, you know, if we leave it up to the states, it's going to be discriminatory. So that's why it has to be in the hands of the federal government. Um, so I thought that was a really fascinating point and a disturbing point that he raised. But, you know, the rhetoric from the left is that this bill is somehow, uh, you know, comparable to Jim Crow laws. And Heritage Foundation President Casey James, who lived through segregation, says that that's actually really an insulting comparison. Georgia voting laws are not discriminatory. They're, they don't make it difficult for, for individuals to vote and they don't discriminate against any individuals. The left's argument is that requiring uh, ID to vote is somehow discriminatory. And frankly, I think that's really insulting to the African-American community to imply that they can't get an ID to vote like everyone else does. That argument seems so, so hypocritical to me coming from the side of the aisle that claims, you know, they are standing for the individuals and they're standing against discrimination. But to make those kind of statements, it really muddies the waters, in my opinion. I completely agree. This is yet another example of the left unintentionally insulting the American people, including many of its own voters. <laughs> I have long been baffled by the idea that it's racist to require voter ID. Uh, Nikki Haley's group, Stand for America, put out this great graphic that <laughs> had two columns, activities where requiring an ID apparently isn't racist. And I'm not going to read them all right now, but they include uh, applying for unemployment, applying for Social Security, applying for Medicaid, applying for food stamps, opening a bank account, purchasing cigarettes, alcohol, buying a car, renting a car, renting the house, getting married, getting on an airplane, 
purchasing a gun, adopting a pet, renting a hotel room. I could go on. And then activities where requiring an ID must be racist. There is one item there, and that is voting. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Which, which bringing us full circle makes it particularly special when airlines come out reprimanding Georgia's election law, for example, like United and others uh, did. Well, (laughs) if Georgia is racist for asking um, its voters to prove their identities with IDs, well, is is your? I would think that your airline is systematically racist then, because you cannot fly on United without proving your identity. Um, so yes, this is all misinformation. I totally defer to Hans and trust what he says is are the driving forces uh, behind the outrage uh, surrounding Georgia's election laws. Uh, And it is precisely those types of activists who are actively manipulating the media to create this storm that, yes, very much could uh, lead us down the path of HR1, which would be quite terrifying. So I know Heritage and Daily Signal are both doing wonderful work on this issue. I know for the listeners, it it is hard to keep up. It is hard to decipher truth from fiction. Uh, But know that there are resources out there. Uh, Virginia, I, I, I know you've compiled some of them. Perhaps we can share them in the show notes, because it is important that we all understand truth from fiction. And we all do what we can to ensure that every legal vote is counted and that we're not going to go down a path that enables voter manipulation and cheating and all sorts of other efforts. Exactly. Yeah. Understanding the facts right now is so important, especially in this debate. So uh, yes, we will be sure to link in the show notes a couple of resources, including that interview that I did with Hans. So um, you all can stay up to date on the facts. All right. Well, stay tuned because up next, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Do you have an interest in public policy? Do you want to hear some of the biggest names in American politics speak? The Heritage Foundation hosts webinars called Heritage Events Live. These webinars are free and open to the public. To find the latest webinars and register, visit heritage.org events. Now it is that time, once again, time for the crowning of our Problematic Woman of the Week. And the crown goes to... Georgia State Representative Jan Jones. Representative Jan Jones testified Tuesday at the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing debating the Georgia election law, which Kelsey and I were just discussing. Democrats called for this hearing and they titled the hearing Jim Crow 2021, the latest assault on the right to vote. Representative Jones testified during the hearing and she was very clear that Georgia's new election bill expands voting rights and is not discriminatory. Take a listen to what she had to say. 
I'm here to discuss what's in Senate Bill 202, not relitigate uh, the 2018 election in which um, my former colleague Stacey Abrams never conceded, nor am I here to relitigate the 2020. What I can say is that the bill does increase accessibility. 47 counties had no two Saturdays of voting and will be required to now under this bill. Additionally, not one single Georgian will have reduced hours of voting and early voting because it allows up to 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. But what it does do is mandate from 9 in the morning to 5 p.m. And we had 134 counties with less or fewer uh, voting hours for early voting. Ms. Jones, the bill if I, absolutely I, does increase the amount. Congratulations to Georgia State Representative Jan Jones for being this week's Problematic Woman of the Week. All right, well, we're going to leave it there for this week. Thanks for joining this week's edition of Problematic Women. Yes, and don't forget to join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. So we would so, so appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you listen. It makes a huge difference. Thank you for having me back on, Virginia, and have a great week, everyone. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.